Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right. So I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Professor Michelle Forb, Director of the Sydney Southeast Asian Center at the University of Sydney. Her research interests focus on Southeast Asian labor movements, trade union aid, and trade union responses to labor migration in East and Southeast Asia. She's the author of a number of works and prominent books, including Workers and Intellectuals, NGOs, and Unions in the Indonesian Labor Movement, editor of Social Activism in Southeast Asia, and co-editor of several volumes, including Beyond Oligarchy, Wealth, Power and Contemporary Indonesian Politics with Cornell. She has just completed the manuscript of a new volume entitled From Migrant to Worker, Trade Union Responses to Temporary Labor Migration in Asia. And she'll speak to us today. Her talk is titled Assessing Destination Country Labor Migration Regimes in Asia, an Integrated Approach. Thanks very much, Lou. As Liz mentioned, I mean, I was a little optimistic when I wrote that. The book is almost there, but not quite. So it's actually perfect timing to give this talk, which is a chapter out of it. The book and the project that it's based on ended up being a decade-long study of union and NGO responses to migrant labour in seven destination countries in Asia, so from Thailand in the west to Japan in the east. And what I was interested in looking at is sort of like taking a multi-scalar approach to this and really seeing how local organisations, NGOs and unions, engaged regionally but also internationally around this question of temporary labour migration, which was, of course, both a challenging one in the region but also a very new one for unions in particular. So you probably are aware of some of these facts, but just a few to get you up to speed if you're not. Of course, inter-regional migration is a huge thing in Southeast Asia, and particularly unskilled and semi-skilled temporary labour migration. I think it's not unfair to say that some of the more developed economies in the region would be really up the creek without a paddle if they didn't have temporary labour migrants from elsewhere in Asia. As you can see from these small numbers, for some countries of origin in the region, it's a really serious part of their economic prosperity, uh, accounting for up to 30% of Nepal's GDP and around 10% of the GDP of the Philippines, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. In other countries like Indonesia, it's not a particularly large percentage of GDP, but of course for particular regions where a lot of migrants come from, it accounts for a really important part of their um, economic flows into particular villages and provinces. What I'm more interested in in this book is looking at the contribution it makes to destination economies and all the politics that goes around that. And in particular, the book is looking at how local unions and NGOs and their international allies have tried to push for changes in labour migration regime, so trying to improve conditions for temporary labour migrants in destination countries. And the paper I'm giving today is from the contextual chapter of the book, and it's very much looking at, okay, what are they trying to improve, and how much do the structures and the political economies of the countries they're working in affect their ability to do so? And as I've just said at the bottom of this slide, this is not just about destination countries. Of course, countries of origin have formal labour migration schemes, they have particular policies on labour migration which affect the availability, the supply of temporary labour migrants into the region. But really, temporary labour migrants' ability to access particular labour markets and what they can do once they do so is very much a factor of what is done on the destination country side. I do have a map there that shows the countries of origin and destination in the region. And you can see the ones with the pale colour are all countries of origin and the darker countries are countries of destination. So reading those off, we're talking about Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Malaysia and Singapore. So seven destination countries, three in Southeast Asia and the rest in Northeast Asia. 
I thought I'd just put in these figures. As you can see, the reliance on temporary labour migration really differs across these countries. So in Hong Kong, you can see that it's a relatively small population overall, and although regular labour migrants are only about 10% of employed persons, what's striking here is that most of them are domestic workers. So they're in a very particular sector of the economy and therefore are very important in that context. If you look down to Singapore and Malaysia, you can see that very significant numbers of temporary labour migrants relative to the numbers of employed persons in each country uh, are present. Another thing to observe is the difference between regular labour migrants and the estimated numbers of irregular labour migrants in different countries. Of course, estimations are difficult when you're not actually counting who comes in and out of a country, but nevertheless we know for certain that in Malaysia and Thailand in particular, there are large numbers of temporary labour migrants who do not come through formal channels. And this is very important, both in terms of their impact on the local labour uh, market, but also in the way that they're positioned in the political economy of temporary labour migration. So what do I mean when I say a labour migration regime? It's interesting, this term's not used as widely as you'd think in the literature on temporary labour migration in Asia, which mostly looks at organisational responses, like especially NGO responses to temporary labour migration, the experiences of migrants themselves and government policy. But accounts that look at government policy often focus primarily on migration policy. And they might mention labour market position and policies around labour market, but they don't really analyse those two groups of policies together, which is what I try to do in this piece. So the two prevailing definitions that I did track down in the literature is one that's very much an international relations definition, looking at how international sets of norms and principles and procedures have evolved around temporary labour migration. And you might think here of the ILO, the IOM, and also G2G type agreements around this and how they are coming to converge a little bit in terms of what are the basic conditions you can expect for migrant workers. The second is a very national definition, and it came out of a piece on Singapore. So it's very much influenced by the Singapore perspective. And you can see here that Bull um, defines it as a set of legal political structures constructed by the state, which attempts to regulate the contradictions of capital by rendering migrant workers politically powerless, but denying their citizenship rights, ensuring their deportability and occupational immobility, and constructing impediments to their political mobilisation. So this definition does refer to both migration elements and labour market position, but very much in a very abstracted kind of way. And I'm trying to make that much more concrete. A book by Martin Roos from 2012 comes a bit more close to what I'm trying to do. He's looking at a whole range of countries and a whole lot of skilled and unskilled migrants, but he, he comes up with this index of openness, which actually deals with a lot of these factors. So I think that's probably the closest to what I've been trying to do here. But again, I think the fact that I come from an industrial relations perspective means that I'm looking... I wouldn't want to say privileging, but I'm certainly giving what I think is deserved of that element of what I call the labour migration regime, which, as I define here, is the plane formed by the intersection of the two axes within the destination country, the first being migration status, and the second, the migrant workers' position in relation to the local industrial relations system. <laughs> People always laugh when they see this diagram. I had a lot of trouble coming up with a diagram that I thought captured some basic facts about industrial relations systems that are really important when we consider labour migration and particularly temporary labour migration. The first of which is when we think of an industrial relations system, so we're thinking here of formal work contracts, we're thinking of mechanisms for arbitration, for conciliation, dispute resolution, 
There's an assumption that they basically are in place in the formal sector and not in place in the informal sector. The informal sector being occupations like domestic work, but also the casual labourer on the farm or the person being paid cash in hand at the local market, those sorts of occupations. But what we see in fact is that everywhere around the world, but particularly in countries that are less developed, if we use the language of development, the effective reach of the industrial relations system is very patchy at best. Uh, so as you, this tries to show you, there's a lot of formal sector occupations that are actually not regulated directly or even indirectly by the state. And this doesn't just include low-level formal sector workers, but it can also in, um, include high-level professionals who are working maybe as, you know, in a waged relationship in the sense that they're being paid for consultancy work or whatever, but it's not a relationship that's regulated in the industrial relations system. It may be regulated somewhere else like contract law. What's interesting also that is in some countries you'll see that there's a dip in the effective reach of the industrial relations system down in the orange unskills, uh, the regular migration box. And that I put in because actually there are some occupations that are in the informal sector that are regulated. And a really good example of this is actually domestic work. In not many countries, but occasionally, such as Hong Kong, domestic work is actually regulated and domestic workers can unionise. So in effect, they have then access to the mechanisms of the industrial relations system. Where this intersects, this labour migration position intersects with the, um, the migration axis, you can see that on one side I've put permanent residents and on the other stateless persons. We could extend this in different ways to full citizens and um, maybe, I don't know, victims of trafficking who have less mobility. But I think these are the, the points that I want to draw because if we think about regular temporary labour migrants, we can see that they're closer to permanent residents in the sense that they are more likely to have access to formal work, formal sector work and to the industrial relations system, whereas irregular unskilled and semi-skilled temporary labour migrants are mostly in the informal sector, though it is possible. For example, there are some factories in Malaysia and Thailand that I'm aware of that are formal sector workplaces, but because no one's bothered to check the work papers of some temporary labour migrants, they can be actually irregular but also in that formal workspace. So there are some anomalies, and I was trying to catch that with this diagram. So... Getting down to tin tacks, what do I mean when I talk about a labour migration regime? As I mentioned before, I think of this as being constructed on the, a plane of two axes, one of which is the migration axis and one is the employment relations axis. When we talk about the, labor mig the migration axis, I think there are four things that are particularly important when we're talking about temporary labour migration, unskilled and semi-skilled temporary labour migration, which is the focus of this study. And the first of these is the extent and the nature of labour migration flows. Uh, you might recall that table I put up earlier that showed the number of regular and irregular temporary labour migrants into different countries in Asia. These have different effects. In countries like Japan, where they don't let in many regular labour migrants, that has an impact on, yeah, I think a negative impact on what I'd call the labour migration regime. The number of irregular migrants, though, even though for personally, for some migrants it can be better to be irregular than regular, but systemically it's actually a negative effect on the nature of the labour migration regime. So that's the first point. The second point, or the second factor I've been looking at, is the complexity of labour migration schemes. And there are two factors here that I think are particularly important. The first is regulation of country of origin. 
This is not just something we see in Asia, but in Asia, many destination countries, in fact all, to some extent regulate the national origin of temporary labour migrants. Some of it through G2G schemes, some of it simply quite arbitrarily. So, for example, in Hong Kong, there are different restrictions on mainland Chinese than there are, for example, on people from Southeast Asia. In Malaysia, at various stages, people from particular national backgrounds or even genders could only apply for certain sorts of work. So nationality has been regulated highly. And it's interesting because some of it's about perceptions of what jobs people do well. Some of it's about international politics. It's about the bilateral relationship between Indonesia and Malaysia at a particular time, the bilateral relationship between Thailand or Laos and Laos or wherever it may be. The second element of that second factor is the regulation of sector of employment. And again, in most countries in Asia, this is very closely regulated. So you can't just come as a temporary labour migrant and work in whatever job you like. You are only allowed into certain sectors, and in some places this is even sub-national. Um, we even had our own version in Australia for um, ex-students, where if you went to a regional university, you could stay and work in Adelaide or somewhere, but you couldn't do it if you are in Sydney. So it's not just an Asian thing, but it's very clear in these, in these contexts. The third is the rigidity of labour contracts, and again, two main things here. The first is the capacity to change the sector of your employment. So if you've brought in on a work permit for agriculture, you are probably not likely to be allowed to move to a manufacturing job, even if you have the skills and there is the demand. The other thing, and this is very restrictive in many of the Asian destination countries, is the ability to renew a contract in country. And this has really important implications for temporary labour migrants because if you've got a bad employer, Jason here is exploiting me, if I decide to leave that job formally, I have to leave the country. So I have a choice of either, either becoming irregular or leaving and therefore doing all the money that I've spent getting to the country. So it, it's a really serious limitation on uh, all sorts of labour rights. The final thing, and this is something that I think people like Ruse would see, I mean he includes trade unions, but... What I think is very important and I think is lacking from a lot of examinations of policy frameworks in these countries is incorporating a, degree, you know, a discussion of the degree of socio-political control into the migration axis. So here I'm really looking at the ability to affect change and in this case NGOs which have been the primary advocates for migrant worker rights in the region how much are they engaged and how, what can they do? So, for example, we have Japan, where they're not very engaged, but they can do a lot if they choose, versus, say, Singapore or Malaysia, where they're very engaged, but there are limitations because of the semi-authoritarian structures on what they can do. In Malaysia, you've got the case, for example, of Irene Fernandez, who, but when she was the head of a very prominent NGO called Tanaganita, was arrested for writing a report that the government didn't like under the... Um, Internal Security Act, and she couldn't travel for a long time and remained under a cloud till her death, in fact, for that. This had a dimming effect on the enthusiasm of other activists, as you can imagine. So this varies across the region. So that's why I think it's very important not to treat it as a separate thing, but to actually treat it as an element of the migration axis. If we turn our um, attention to employment relations, as I said, this is something that's been much more undercooked in terms of most approaches to temporary labour migration, but I would argue is absolutely vital if we want to understand not only the position of labour migrants in host societies, but also their capacity to change the conditions in which they find themselves. So the first is the reach of the industrial relations system, and this is what that previous diagram was trying to show. 
More specifically, though, when we're thinking about temporary labour migrants, we have to think about the extent of industrial relations coverage in migrant-dense sectors. There's no point having really strong trade unions and strong regulations if they're all in the manufacturing sector and your workers are all on farms, for example. The second thing is, even with industrial relations coverage, is there or is there not a union presence in a migrant-dense sector? An interesting example of this is Malaysia. Until quite recently, there was a ban on industrial unions in the electronic sector, which was an important export sector, but also one that employed many migrant workers. So even though I mean, Malaysian unions aren't strong anyway, but even though they're in a sector that was normally a union heartland in that particular migrant labour regime, they did not have access to a union. The next element here that I think is important is union influence. And this happens in two ways. One is the level of integrations of unions in the industrial relations system. And one of the really interesting findings, I think, from this work has been where Singapore comes on the graph, and I get to it. You know, Singapore performs pretty well, actually, in the labour migration regime. And if you think about Singaporean trade unions, you might think, really? You think about all the controls there are on domestic workers. But in fact, unions are well integrated into the Singapore system, even if they really... You know, it's a discussion within the framework of the government policy, um, and they're also very present in migrant-dense sectors with the exception of domestic work. The next factor, of course, is the moderating factor of that, which is the militancy of the trade union movement. So, for example, in South Korea, that doesn't have a particularly strong... Well, a union movement that's not very well integrated into the industrial relations system, but it's very militant. So, of course, you end up with Singapore and South Korea not being too far from each other on the graph, but for very different reasons. The third point is freedom of association. And again, I've distinguished two things here. The first is the ability of temporary labour migrants to join a mainstream union. All the destination countries in Asia say that temporary labour migrants in the formal sector can join a trade union. But their ability to do that in practice, of course, is a very different question. So really here, it's not just about the formal regulation I'm talking, but in practice, how accessible is it to temporary labour migrants? The other aspect of this is the right to form a migrant-only union, which is not available in Southeast Asia, but is available in South Korea, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong. Japan doesn't have migrant-only unions, but it has pseudo-migrant-only unions, which are tiny little unions formed by sympathetic Japanese or a few, but most of the members, and the main purpose is to deal with migrants. The interesting thing then is sort of tracking. If you're allowed to form a migrant-only union, how integrated is it with the mainstream trade union movement? And if it's not, what impact does it really have? So you've got the case of Taiwan, for example, where mainstream unions are not at all interested in temporary labour migration, in fact, still quite hostile. You've now, since 2011, been able to form migrant-only unions, but because they're not integrated into the mainstream trade union movement, it's basically just an extension of the NGO that sponsored it. In Hong Kong, by contrast, where you, temporary labour migrants, including domestic workers, can form unions, you've got these small but politically quite influential domestic worker unions that have... They're not integrated into mainstream unions, but they're integrated into the mainstream trade union movement in the, in the sense that they have an affiliation with the HKCTU. And given that, even though the Hong Kong trade union movement's pretty weak, these unions have actually found themselves a niche. And because the system is relatively open in terms of the degree of socio-political control on migrants, you often see domestic workers protesting on the streets of Hong Kong, and they've actually been able to achieve some really significant changes in the regulations that affect them. Finally, union engagement with migrant workers, which is very closely tied to the discussion I've just had about freedom of association. How much do mainstream trade unions engage with this? 
And if they do, how well? And on the other hand, if you've got migrant-only unions, how effective are they? One of the interesting things about this last box, which I won't be able to talk to today, but is the key part of the study, is actually how the influence of the global union federations and other parts of the international trade union movement have been able to influence unions in some Asian countries and not others because of that relationship of trade union aid. So in the countries where unions are weaker and more dependent on external support, they're actually more likely to embrace temporary labour migrants than in countries where, like Japan, where the trade union movement is not militant but is relatively financially secure. So what I've done now, having identified these eight factors, I did some very close work on all seven countries and rated them on each of the eight factors on each of the axes. So you can see from this diagram, I've given you some examples already, but basically based on a qualitative assessment, interviews with trade unionists, interviews with migrant labour NGOs, interviews with some migrants themselves, I rated from high to low each country on each of these factors. And as I said before, there's some interesting anomalies in this. For example, the fact that Singapore... Singapore has relatively high migration controls, but as you'll see on the next slide, performs quite well on employment relations, partly because of the sectoral distribution of workers. Similarly, I went through the same kind of process for the employment relations axis. And then what I did was I took each of these factors. I'm not quant, but I played around a bit, I weighted them, I added them up, and I came up with this. So, as I was saying before, this is in fact a relative assessment of the labour migration regimes of all seven countries. The vertical axis is migration, and it goes from least inclusive in the bottom left-hand corner to most inclusive at the top, and ditto for the employment relations axis. And I think for scholars of industrial relations, this is quite a striking picture because you certainly wouldn't expect to see Singapore where it is if you're thinking about industrial relations generally, nor Hong Kong for that matter. As I said before, Hong Kong's trade union movement is quite weak. And I'd like to make a few comments about this axis um, and what it means. using So basically summarising a few of the things that went into those messy tables without dragging you through all of it. So Hong Kong, these are compared relative to each other, not to any ideal standard of what a union should or shouldn't do and what a migration act regime should or shouldn't do. Hong Kong, as I mentioned before, the local trade union movement is weak, but because most migrant workers are in fact domestic workers and domestic workers are allowed to unionise and those unions are integrated into the mainstream trade union movement and they've had influence on policy, it performs very well on the employment relations axis. On the migration axis, it also performs very well because although it's not a dream job being a domestic worker in Hong Kong, actually things are pretty good in terms of your ability to renew contracts in country, your ability to change employers and so on. So again, as I said, it's an internal comparison rather than to an absolute standard. In fact, any Lestari who was a domestic worker in Hong Kong many years ago and has stayed on through a deal with an activist to be a domestic worker organiser, spoke in the UN this week. And, you know, so she's, a, she's got an international profile, she organises workers in Hong Kong, she doesn't actually, do, I don't think she cleans anyone's kitchen anymore, but the point is that the migration regime allows someone like her to stay. That would not be possible, for example, in Singapore. So it's not surprising then that Singapore is quite a way down on the migration axis um, and that there's sort of this band, once you get rid of Hong Kong, on the migration axis, the reason that Malaysia is a little lower than others is 
for a start, it's got the large flows of irregular labour migrants. It's very restrictive on nationality and contract type. And when you finish your contract, theoretically, you have to go straight home, all those sorts of things. What's interesting in Malaysia, I think, is a lot of the irregular labour migrants actually have a better situation than regular labour migrants um, because the borders are porous. If they're from Indonesia, it's easy enough to pretend you're Malaysian and so on. On the employment relations axis, it's quite low because unions are so weak and they're not very well integrated into the industrial relations system. But at the same time, in terms of their progress, if I, if I did two of these with one ten years ago, Malaysia would have been way, way lower on the employment relations axis. So it's come a long way. And the reason it has is because of the influence of the international labour movement. So pre-2005-ish, it was still statements by the NTUC that temporary labour migrants were threatening local jobs, they were terrible, they should be sent home, all this sort of stuff. You still see a bit of that, but overall the union movement has taken a much more positive, discursive position on migrant workers, and then some unions have actually made a lot of effort to start recruiting migrant workers and to actually change the way that they deal with all their members. So interestingly in Malaysia in particular, it's possible even to argue that the fact that they've started to deal with temporary labour migrants in a different way has improved the way that they're dealing with all their members because they actually have to engage. They can't just be an official body that does nothing. Because mostly the Malaysian unions spend a lot of time in the courts dealing with unfair dismissal law cases. They don't, they don't really organise in unions. So this is pushing them more along the organising spectrum. Um, South Korea is another interesting one. Again, the trade union movement's not that strong. You might remember that after democratisation there was sort of a burst in um, militancy, and it's still a relatively militant union movement, but it's not very well represented in sectors that have lots of migrants. But where it is, it's been interesting because um, in practice they don't do that much organising, but they've been really strong advocates for migrant worker rights, not just in South Korea, but globally. And there's a really interesting case. They, they supported the formation of a migrant-only trade union run by irregular migrants, so illegal migrants. And it went all the way to the High Court, the Supreme Court, and it was actually the verdict was that all workers in South Korea have a right to unionise regardless of migration status. So in terms of changing the formal structures of the labour migration regime, that was a huge win. In practice, of course, the government just keeps deporting the irregular presidents of the migrant union. So it's not actually that great in practice. But in terms of shifting the goalposts, to have a country actually come out and say irregular labour migrants can unionise is really important. Poor old Thailand... Thailand does a bit better than Malaysia on the migration axis, although most temporary labour migrants in Thailand are actually um, refugees from Myanmar. Um, they have allowed them to uh, register post facto in Thailand. So they've had these big registration campaigns where they've allowed people who have come in illegally to get legal status. This has been tried sometimes through amnesties in Malaysia too. But basically, so on the migration access is not that much worse than most of the others. In fact, I'd argue a bit better than Japan because it's more open to migrants, but it does very poorly on the employment access. And this is for a number of reasons. Firstly, trade unions in Thailand are incredibly weak. Secondly, they're not present in the sectors where migrants are present. So the main union that has been pro-migrant has actually been the civil servants union. And of course, the civil service doesn't employ low-skilled temporary labour migrants. So it's acting more as a, an outreach organisation in concert with NGOs and GUFs rather than in a direct capacity. Unions in, in industries like automotives, seafood processing and so on, where there are lots of migrant workers, have not been very interested in those migrant workers. So that's why it does so poorly there. So what's the point of knowing all of this? 
In terms of the broader study, I think it's not very helpful to study activists' attempts to change a system unless you know what the system is. So it's in that context that this work was done. But I think, too, in the broader policy sphere, it really does help us more systematically and fully understand the position of temporary labour migrants in particular labour markets in particular destination countries. So my argument here would be that basically it's really important to move beyond description when we're assessing the systemic factors that govern migrant workers' experiences. It's all very nice to know how much they suffer and how much they want to be home with their kids and how much they're making and so on. That's all important, but in fact we can't do much with that information if we don't know about the structural constraints on their experience. As I've, I've argued here, migration status is of course very important and in many of these contexts there's another aspect that I haven't had a ch chance to talk about today but where you'll actually have internal disputes between the ministry or the department responsible for migration and the one responsible for labour rights, labour manpower or labour or whatever it's called in different countries, where ultimately if they disagree Immigration always wins. So you've got these power relationships within bureaucracies, you know, the multi-polar nature of states that also feed into um, the reason why migration is so important. But at the same time, it's not the only factor, and it may determine where in the labour market temporary labour migrants can be positioned, can, can enter. But then the conditions for local workers in that part of the labour uh, market then affect how much opportunity there is for those temporary labour migrants to access the industrial relations system and therefore some sorts of guarantees of their labour rights. So when we bring these two axes together, it really does allow us to compare different countries' labour migration regimes in a very different way, but also assess those structural opportunities for change. I've done this at the macro comparative level, but the way I've designed it, I think it could just as equally be used in a single country to look at the position of different groups of temporary labour migrants. So, for example, on those tables and the, um, the graph that I produced of them, if we looked at the position, for example, of foreign domestic workers in each of these countries, the position of the country relative to each other could change, would change dramatically. So it's quite possible to look at occupation-specific comparative mappings, but also I think it could be useful to compare Asia with other regions of the world. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.